Esther chapter 3. Now, as we mentioned here, as we started our study in Esther a couple weeks ago, actually, excuse me, last week. Thank you, Justin. It'd be great to do the whole story at once, because when you break this book down, you really lose a lot of the flow of it. So what we're going to do tonight, Lord willing, time willing, is we're going to do chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Yeah, I know. I've never done that before. In 20 years of teaching, I've never done that before. But it's important to get the whole flow. It really is. This is one of those books you don't want to chop up. You really don't. So, And it's a book that really kind of, as you read it, it reads like a story. And it's so important to get that background. And if you weren't with us, chapters 1 and 2 of last week, really important there that we're introduced to the main characters of Esther. We're introduced to her cousin Mordecai. And Mordecai discovers a plot where the king's going to be killed at the end of Esther chapter 2. Esther goes through this beauty pageant, if you will. Next thing you know, here's a Jew, a secret Jew. That's the queen of Persia. It's this amazing story. And as I joked last week, I said it kind of reads a little bit like a soap opera. And I had so many of you come up to me after. It's like, oh, I love the book of Esther. So I want to publicly apologize for calling it a soap opera, but I still privately think that. So the point is, it does read like this really crazy story. And if you've never read Esther before and you're looking at how do all these details come together, please remember the ongoing theme of the book of Esther is this idea found in chapter 4. And here's our key verse. Take a look at verse 14 of chapter 4. If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This idea of God working behind the scenes, moving puzzle pieces around that we don't see, and the Lord taking care of this big problem, this big situation. So I don't know what you're facing in life here tonight, but God is moving behind the scenes in ways that you do not see nor understand and have the faith to see the big picture that is being worked out. So what I did here, since we're doing so many chapters, I just made some simple, straightforward points. And I put them up here on the PowerPoints. I know some of you are note takers, and if I say it verbally, it's, you don't have time to write it down. So here's just some, some key points that we're going to do. Now, so... Lord willing, time willing, Esther 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Hey, let's jump into this and see what God has in store. It says, after these things, after what things? The first two chapters. Esther is now the queen, secretly a Jew. Mordecai has saved the king's life. All this is kind of behind the scenes yet. After these things, King Assyrius promoted Haman, the son of Hamathada, the Agiite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. We're introduced finally to our last main character in this book, Haman. Haman, I think you can make a case argumentably, is one of the worst bad guys in the entire Bible. Now, the problem is Haman doesn't get a lot of recognition for being such a good bad guy. He comes on the scene in chapter 3, and I know, I'm going to give away the plot, he dies by chapter 7. But this guy has such a holy hatred of the Jews. It's almost satanically inspired, and we'll get to that. But the key thing is, if you're just reading this, and you see this little phrase here that he's the Agiite, it's so easy for our minds just to kind of skip over that. Remember, every scripture is important. Every word is important. And I love it when we get to a verse and we stop and I say, Lord, what is the purpose of you telling us that he's an Agiite? So let's talk about this for a little bit. A little bit of background. I'm going to give you some references. You can kind of follow along with me. I would like it, if you would, please go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Agiites. Agag was a king. He was the king of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were a problem. 
They were a problem all the way back from Exodus chapter 17. And in Exodus chapter 17, God said, Israel, you will battle the Amalekites for all your generations. Just every generation is going to be battling them. And the Amalekites represent this idea of flesh, the sin. That you try to kill it, you try to destroy it, but it just keeps on popping up. So we know from Exodus 17 that there's going to be this ongoing struggle between the Amalekites and the Jews. So what happens now, God finally says, I've had enough of this. And what you see here in 1 Samuel 15 is God raises up Saul the king. And he says, I want you to go take care of the Amalekites. Take a look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them and kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. God says it's time for this to be destroyed. Amalekites represent your flesh. It represents sin. Keep that in the back of your mind. So Saul goes and he utterly defeats them. But, verse 9, verse 8, excuse me. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag in the best. See, that's a picture of your flesh. You hate sin. You hate what it does. You want to destroy it but yet you kind of like it a little bit. And so you hang on to just a little bit of it. And so you hang on to these things that you shouldn't hang on to. It's going to cause problems. It's going to cause issues later on. But yet it's so appealing. It looks so good. I just want to hang on to just a little bit of it, Lord. I mean, Lord, look at it. I used to do this. That was really, really bad. Now I'm only doing this. It's not as bad. And so what happens is we make up excuses in our head. We make up reasons why it works. And this is exactly what Saul did. Saul says right here, verse 15, Saul says they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen because we were going to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we utterly destroyed. We always have excuses, don't we? And those excuses are really so lame when you actually think them through. You know, I wouldn't get angry and upset if you wouldn't do this. You know, I, I, I used to drink so much and I only do this. I used to look at so much and not only do this. I mean, just think about all the things that we kind of say. It's not as bad as it could be. Or, Lord, there's really some good in this. I've seen people try to defend certain shows and movies and music. It's like, well, you know what? I really like the way the acting is. Or something along that type of line. No, if it's bad, if it's awful, it has to be utterly destroyed. Saul says, I wanted to save it. Samuel comes in and says, you know what? God just wants your obedience, Saul. That's what he wants from the beginning. Look at verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the fat of the rams. For rebellion is as of the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Since Saul would not take care of the Amalekites and King Agag, Samuel did himself. And what happened is it's a picture of Saul losing the kingdom because he was so focused on the flesh and it looks good, it sounds good, it feels good, it's not as bad as you think. So keep this now in the back of your mind. This is the beauty that we can build on this. So now you've got this in the back of your mind. Jump ahead. Jump ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 1, Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel. So now here at the end of 2 Samuel, what happens is this. Verse 2 of 2 Samuel chapter 1, it says, On the third day, behold, it happened, the man came from Saul's camp 
with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? He said, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, how did the matter go? Because there was this huge battle where Saul and his sons were killed. Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, as it happened by chance to be on Mount Geboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. So here was Saul already with a weapon through his stomach here. He's getting ready to die. Now when he looked behind at him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered and said, Here I am. And he said to him, Who are you? So he answered him, I am an Amicalite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. Please end my life. I am such suffering and misery. It says at the end of Samuel, what happens is they're going to come and trap me, and, and their enemies are going to come and capture me and torture me. So I stood over him and killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Now, isn't that fascinating? God told Saul to destroy all the Amicalites. And Saul wouldn't do it. It's a picture of our flesh. Exodus says we're going to battle this every generation. We're always going to battle the flesh. God says, I want you to kill it. I want you to destroy it. Saul did it. Who's the one that actually ends Saul's life? An Amicalite. An Amicalite. The people that he was supposed to utterly destroy And he didn't do it. And it literally comes back that the person that kills him is the people he was supposed to destroy. That's what sin does. Sin will sneak back into your life and utterly destroy you. Now jump back to Esther chapter 3. So when you now see Haman introduced, and he's the son of the Agiite, he is an Amicalite. Still around, hundreds of years later, they were supposed to be utterly destroyed and they're not. And this same picture of sin has risen back up Try to utterly destroy the Jews. Do you have something in your life that you tried to put a sword through, but you didn't want to kill it all the way? Did you have something in your life that you knew you should have destroyed, and you hung on to it? That thing's going to keep coming back to bite you and destroy you. And that comes to our first point. You need to have a holy hatred of sin. These things that are not good for you or your family, there needs to be such a holy hatred of it. You say, I want to utterly destroy this in my life because this is destroying me. And if you choose not to, it's going to be just like the Amicalites and the Agiites. It's going to keep coming back and being an issue and being a problem. So when you read this and you say, I see Agiite and I don't even think of anything about it, these are all the little puzzle pieces we need to put together to understand how it's a picture of sin. Now, have you got any quick questions, comments, or about anything so far with just the Agiites, the Amicalites? I know it's a lot of history, but it's important to get it. Okay. Now, I do mean we're really going to try to do five chapters, and we're going to pick up the pace now a little bit. Verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gates bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Haman's a big guy. He's been promoted. Everybody loves him. They need to respect him. For the sin, for the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Remember, Mordecai is Esther's cousin. He's a Jew. He's not going to pay homage to this guy. Because that's not who he's here to worship. That's not who he's here to bow down to. Takes us to our second point, real careful. Careful who or what you bow down to. Here's the truth. You find something in your life, and that thing in your life is going to drive you. I hope it's the Lord. I hope he's on the throne of your life. Truth is, for most of us, he's not. Let's just be honest. What drives us? Ah, I can be anything. Free time. We just look forward to free time. Can't wait till we get off work. Can't wait for the weekend. Can't wait for vacation. I can do what I want. Free time. 
Sometimes it's a paycheck that drives us. Sometimes it's physical pleasures that drive us. Sometimes it's the desire to have everybody like us, be it pride. Sometimes it's, I, well, I don't know. But there's going to be something that you're going to say is so important in my life that I'm going to make that the thing that I bow down to. Mordecai here takes a stand and says, I am not going to bow or pay homage to Haman. This is an evil man. I'm not going to do it. There's going to be a lot of side effects to this. But we as believers have to be willing to stop and say, I will not put anything in front of the Lord. See, when we think of idols, we think of the little statues that you put on your shelves and you worship to. No, we don't have that nowadays. An idol is anything that gets in the way between you and the Lord. And so that idol can be anything. That idol could be your spouse. That idol could be your kids. Some people worship at the altar of family. They raise the institution of family so high, it supersedes who Jesus Christ is. I love Dawn. I love her with all my heart. But I did not die on the cross for her sins. My job is to take her deeper in Jesus Christ. I love my kids, but I want my kids to grow up in loving Jesus more than they love me. Because that's what the Lord did for them. So we just got to be careful of who we bow down to and who we choose to worship. So there's our second point. Think this through as we go through it. So what happens now? Verse 3, the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Why aren't you bowing down, Mordecai? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them. And they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. Haman is so upset. He's been promoted. He has anything he wants. Here in just a little bit, he's going to be a special guest at the banquet for the king and the queen. This guy is high up. But he's allowing one person to control him. Now, that still happens today. We allow one person to control our joy and peace. And I'm not talking about Jesus. Usually it's a coworker, a neighbor, a child, a spouse. And what happens is this one person at work that you only have to be around with 8, 9, 10 hours a day, they become such a thorn in your side, that's all you think about. Even when you're not at work, you're thinking about them. Or it's a spouse, or it's a child, or it's a neighbor, or it's something. And you allow this one person to dictate your joy in life. Please think that through. You allow one person to have that much power over you that they control your joy, your peace, your purpose. I, you know, I can't think. I always think about what they're doing. I can't focus. Oh, man, no. I had a situation, it's been years ago, where there was somebody. And, and if you ask what they did to me, I couldn't even tell you exactly what they did. But it just kept eating at me and eating at me and eating at me to the point that even when I ran into somebody... With the same first name as them, it just made my stomach get all worked up. And I realized I'm allowing one person to have that much power over my life. They control my joy. They control my peace. They control my thoughts. They control everything. I could be having a great day, a great moment, and this person comes to mind, and all of a sudden I'm just now angry, discouraged, depressed, upset, whatever you want to say. No. No. Haman right here, one guy won't pay him homage. One guy won't bow down. And it fills him with such a wrath and such an anger that he decides what? Verse 6. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Yeah, it's not enough for me to destroy Mordecai. 
I'm going to take out every Jew as well. So what happens is in verse 7, it's the first month, and so he casts lots. This is something they did a lot in the Old Testament. What should we do? And they cast lots, and a cast to that is the pure, which is lots. You're going to remember that word because there's a feast of Purim coming up. And what happens is the lot fell to the 12th month. So now Haman goes to the king in verses 8 on, and he basically tells this whole story. King, you got this group of people living in the kingdom with you. They don't respect you. They don't bow down to you. They don't worship you. They don't follow your laws. They're a real problem. Do I have your permission to put a bounty on their head? So that way anybody who kills them will receive a reward, and they can take the bounty of whatever they take from these people. And the king says, sounds like a good idea to me. So what happens now is the king passes this law that in the 12th month that everybody has permission to go out and kill whatever Jew they want, take whatever they want from their house, and they have the permission to do this. What's the result of this? Verse 14, same chapter. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all the people that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel, that's the capital. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. They're happy. Great idea. We're taking out our enemies. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. Why were they perplexed? This doesn't make any sense. The Jews have been living with us for decades. They're not an issue. They're not a problem. Why would they want to do it? Because there is a holy hatred of God's people. It's satanic. It's just utterly satanic. And this is something that is this ongoing theme that you see throughout the entire Bible. Think back to Exodus. Pharaoh wanted all the Jewish kids killed. Think in Matthew, when Jesus was born, Herod decreed to have all the little boys killed. Whatever God loves, Satan hates. God loves the Jews, Satan's going to hate the Jews. And you see repeatedly throughout the Bible, Satan's attempts to utterly destroy the Jews. This is another one right here, and this is what happens. So, go ahead here and go to the next slide here, Dustin. Continuing our drama... Now what's going to happen? Verse 1, chapter 4, Mordecai learns what's going on. He's obviously sad. He's distressed. He cries out. All the Jews now are in mourning and weeping and fasting. So what happens in verse 4? Esther's maids find out. Esther's people find out. So she sends garments to clothe Mordecai and take him sackcloth away from him, but he will not accept them. She goes, something's wrong with my cousin Mordecai. I don't know what. So I'm just going to send him some stuff to say, just be happy here. What's going on? Well, then verse 5, Esther calls Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what, was, what and why this was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square, and that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him, that the plead before him for the people. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So basically, Mordecai, listen, they're going to destroy us. You have a, you have a spot. You have a position. You can go in and influence the king. You can save us, Esther. Our next point, take a risk in faith for the Lord. What's she going to do? Verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. Esther says, listen, I can go to the king, but if he doesn't call for me, I'm going to be put to death. 
I'm literally putting my life on the line. I haven't seen the king in 30 days. He hasn't called for me. So I just can't walk in. This is not like the marriage that you think of now. She can't just walk into the king and say, can I talk to you, honey? It doesn't work that way. She's literally putting her life on the line. So they come back and tell Mordecai. And Mordecai says this, and this is what we've been talking about. Here's our theme. Do not think in your heart that you'll escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Take a risk and faith for the Lord. Put your life on the line, Esther. This is, this is what we've been talking about. All the way back in chapter 1, the queen loses her position. What does that matter? Esther chapter 2. Oh, wait a second. This, this secret Jew becomes the queen? Okay, now years have passed. So now all of a sudden, Haman comes on the scene. He doesn't like Mordecai. And he says, well, Mordecai is a Jew. I'm going to kill all the Jews. Oh, won't you just notice? God put a Jew to be the queen of the kingdom. This is the Lord moving behind the scenes in ways that we don't see and don't understand. And, and this is where right now you guys got to decide what you believe. There's a little phrase that I like to use, and it's called micro faith or macro faith. And, and I heard a teaching on it, and I kind of ran with it a little bit. It comes back to when I remember taking economics classes in college. Maybe you did. You had macroeconomics and microeconomics. Macro faith is big picture faith. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. We believe that David killed Goliath. These, we get it. Micro faith is the tiny little detail faith. We believe all those amazing things, but yet my situation at work tomorrow is so big, I'm in worry, fear, anxiety, and tears over it. Wait a second. God can create the world in six days out of nothing, but he can't control what's going to happen at your job tomorrow? See, we have the macro faith, but do we really have the micro faith to trust it? Right here, Esther, how do you think you became queen? You're just a Jew from the country. You are the queen. God put you in this place. Look at verse 14. Yet who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. I'm telling you right now, some of you are in a position, and you're doing everything you can to talk yourself out of something. And the Lord says, no. I put you in this position. This is not a coincidence. This is not a whatever. This is, this is why you're here. But we're afraid to take that step. We can believe in these huge big things of the Bible. We can teach the Sunday school lessons. But we're afraid to go talk to that person at work. We're afraid to go take a stand for the Lord here. I'm, I'm just telling you, some of you right now are in Esther. You're in a position that you really shouldn't be in. How in the world did you get there? And God says, I put you there. And I want you to take that step, and I want you to do it. Verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. I like this. Get people praying. Get people fasting. I'm going to take this risk. I'm going to take this step of faith, and we're going to see what's going to happen. Boy, it's a beautiful thing. Now, so far, any quick questions, comments over here that we covered? Ryan. Uh, two points real quick. Um, chapter 3, verse 6, he wanted to destroy all the Jews because yeah. of one person's transgression against them. Yeah. That's the same sort of, you know, prejudice against, like, you know, people or racism or anti-religious bigotry. Or... Oh, agreed. You are absolutely right. 
Yep. No. Esther is a very unique book when it comes to that, and I would assume that most people would not know who Haman is. Like I said, he only comes onto the scene for such a few short amount of chapters. And when you really study out Haman, we're going to get to this here more today, because we literally are doing his entire life. Haman is one of the most insecure, weak men you'll ever meet. I mean, this guy is just a wuss. I don't know what else to say. He really is. He has all this power. He has all this authority. He really does. One guy doesn't bow down to him, and next thing you know, I'm killing everybody. I mean, have you ever met a guy like that? They're in a position of power and authority, but they have no backbone, they have no strength, no nothing, and they can't handle any criticism, they can't handle any problems, they can't handle anything. That's, that's Haman. This guy is just so... And you're going to see him over the next couple of chapters, how many times he goes home and just cries on his bed. This guy is just so insecure, and he's allowing one person to have that much power over him. He really honestly is. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? All right, hey, I just want to remind you guys, and, and I know I keep repeating this. Please see all these puzzle pieces coming together. This, this is how the Lord moves. This is how the Lord works. And he still does it today. So you're facing something right now that really does not look like it has an answer. The Lord does. He's doing things behind the scenes that you do not see, nor or understand. And you need to walk in faith and trust that he's doing it. So now Esther is going to take this step of faith. She's literally putting her life on the line. Taking a risk in faith for the Lord. Please note the phrase, a risk in faith for the Lord. You're not just taking a risk. No, I'm doing this in faith because I don't see the end as a result. And I'm doing it for the Lord. For the Lord. So what happens? After three days of people praying and fasting, she gets dressed. And she goes to the king. Puts her life on the line. So the king sees her and finds favor. And so she gets to come in, verse 2. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Right there, Esther, go for it. I'm a Jew. And your your right-hand man, Haman, wants to kill all of us. And that includes me. I'd like you to do something about it. A lot of wisdom. Look at verse 4. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. So she prepares a banquet. And then the king says, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the queen and Haman, king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And so once again in verse 6, he says, What is it that you want, Esther? I'll give you half the kingdom. And she goes, Here's my request. Can I do another banquet for you tomorrow? And bring everybody. So this first banquet was just a quick little, Will you join me? Now this is going to be prepared. She's going to set this whole thing up. Now we're reintroduced to Haman, verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. Why? He got personally invited to a lunch with the king and queen, and now a follow-up supper with the king and queen. But look, he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, and he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. I'm telling you right now, if I had to pick somebody to not be my friend in the Bible, Haman is probably at the top of the list. I think I'd rather hang out with Judas than Haman. Because Haman's going to just tell me all about himself in verse 11. And as he's telling me all about himself, 
then he's going to just do flip-flop here. Because take a look at verse 12. Moreover, Haman said, Besides Queen Esther invited no one but me to come with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I'm again invited by her along with the king. I'm the best person in the world. But now we go to the sad side, verse 13. Yet all this avails me nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Oh, my life is miserable because of Mordecai the Jew. I mean, seriously, did you know somebody like that where you talk to them? It's like, how did your day go? Oh, it was a great day. Everything went great and fine. But then I came home and now my day is awful and horrible. And you never know what you're going to get. When you talk to them, you're either going to get happy person or sad person. They're jumping all over the spectrum emotionally. Book of James says that they're like a wave tossed to and fro by the sea. They're up and down, up and down. They don't have a foundation on the Lord. They allow the world to control their emotions so much. And here's this guy that has so much, but this one person, go back to that point, the one person has that much power over him. He goes home, and the only thing he can talk about is Mordecai, who won't bow down to me. Verse 14. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high. And in the morning suggested the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And this thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. What a great idea. Let's kill the guy. Now, that's not a biblical point, so don't take that. But what a great idea. This will make me happy. Look at my next point here. Let Jesus be enough. This guy had everything, and he wasn't happy because he still needed Mordecai's okay. I run into so many people that are called, claimed to be Christians, and Jesus is not enough for them. And you tell them, you know, he died on the cross for your sins. You have a home waiting for you in heaven. You have eternity. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You have God in you. Yeah, I know, but if I could just be married. You are married to Jesus for all of eternity. Oh, if I could just have this job, or if I could just have this, or if just my health was better. Jesus isn't enough for them. And so what happens is you try to convince them that the Savior is enough. No, they're like Haman. Really happy, then angry. Really happy, then sad. And they just back and forth, back and forth. Because their world is based on joy and happiness that comes from temporal things rather than the eternal knowing of who Jesus Christ is. And that's something we all need to remember. So look at this story. Once again, all the puzzle pieces coming together. Now you get to chapter 6. Guess what happens in chapter 6? The king can't sleep. So that night, the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told Abiathalna and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs and doorkeepers, who had sought to lay hands on King Azarius. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Well, wouldn't you just know it? It just happened that that night, the king can't sleep. It just happens that they bring him a book to read. It just happens that it reminds him of who Mordecai is. And it just happens to remind him, we should do something to honor this guy. Verse 4, the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the court, outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai. On the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in. The king asked, what shall be done for the man now whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, who would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, for the man who the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse in which the king has written, which has a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. 
Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse that you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. I would love to have seen that. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? Oh my goodness. There's puzzle pieces being put together behind the scene that we don't see. Look at our next point. There are no coincidences, no luck, and no by chance. There, there are none. So when we understand this, if we really do believe what Romans 8.28 says, that in all things, God works for the good. We have to trust that. So when you go into work and you're getting ready to leave for work, and I don't know, it's your first day on the job and you want to impress the boss, and you've got a flat tire and you're going to be late. In all things, God works for the good. If you had these big plans made... Big plans. You've waited for this, expected this, have been wanting this. It all falls through, and all things God works for the good. It just blows my mind how often we have, once again, the macro faith. I believe the Bible and the truth of eternity, but when it comes to my day-to-day living, Lord, I can't trust you to take care of things. The Lord knew what he was doing. He has all these puzzle pieces together. And who's the one that has to do it? Verse 11, Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Now this is back to wimpy Haman. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him, his wife and his men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai before him, whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but it will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So Haman comes back. And when you see where here it says that he hurried to his house mourning with his head covered, his head being covered... At that time, that'd be the deepest form of mourning that you are in this idea of like somebody died. Who died? Haman's pride died. That's what died. So Haman is back home. Everything's falling apart. Everything's falling apart. And he is so distraught over this. I tell you, folks, I've seen it. And maybe you've seen it in your life. Maybe we're afraid to admit it. We allow one person, one little situation to knock us down. I call them spiritual hangnails. Somebody will contact, and it's just the end of the world. What's the end of the world? And this little, tiny, minute thing happened in their life, and they allow it to have that much power to destroy them, to destroy their witness, to destroy their joy, to destroy their peace. It destroys everything. It does not matter in the whole scheme of heaven or hell. And they allow it to control them because Jesus is not enough for them. So now Haman goes to the banquet, chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people and my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed and be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Azarius answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. 
So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the palace of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was there. Then the king said, We also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbanah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman in the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Unbelievable story. When you just see the full picture come around. Can you go with me to Proverbs 13, 21? Proverbs 13, please. Sometimes we get frustrated. People get away with evil. People get away with things in our lives. People have hurt us. People have armed us. And we think that they got away with it and we don't think it's fair. There's a great verse in the book of Isaiah that says, Woe to whom who calls good evil and evil good. We live in a society today where we call good evil and we call evil good. You look at Mordecai here and you look at the good he did and it seemed to be ignored. But in time, it brought back up. You look at Haman and what he did and it seems like this guy should be punished, but it looks like he's not. God sees and God knows. Take a look at Proverbs 13, 21. Evil pursues sinners... But to the righteous, good should be repaid. How simple of a verse. Evil pursues sinners, but to the righteous, good shall be repaid. Evil will be repaid. And it will be repaid for all of eternity. There are going to be people that think they got away with stuff on this earth. There's no doubt about that. But they have to stand before the Lord in the great white throne judgment. And they're going to have to give an account of what they did in their lives. And that evil will be repaid. Now that should not bring us joy. If anything, that should bring us sadness to know that people are going to be suffering for all of eternity. That's why we have the gospel. That's why we want to get out there. But evil will be repaid. Think of all the verses about evil in the Bible. About where the Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He doesn't ask you to do it. He says, I'll take care of it. I'll make sure all accounts are settled. God here in his infinite wisdom had all these puzzle pieces aligned. All these puzzle pieces aligned. Go back with me just to chapter 1. Just think it through. The queen loses her job. Chapter 2, the hidden Jew becomes the queen. Chapter 3, Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king, saves the king's life. Chapter 4, this very evil man comes in and just happens to want to destroy all the Jews. Then what we have here going on in chapter 5 is we have this idea of Esther says, I'm going to try to save the Jews. Chapter 6, the king just happens to not be able to sleep at night, reads about what Mordecai did, honors Mordecai, Haman has to do it. Then in chapter 7, Haman is put to death instead of the Jews. Now, we still have a couple chapters left, and time does not permit us to do 8, 9, and 10 tonight, but we can do that next week. But the point is this. If this is the only thing you get out of tonight, God is moving and working behind the scenes even when you don't see it. This book is argumentably the best book in the Bible to prove that point, that God is doing stuff when we don't see, and he just simply asks us to walk in faith. Can you go with me to the book of Habakkuk real quick to close up? Habakkuk. Anybody have any quick questions, comments here? Ryan. Uh, the gallows, uh, 75 feet high. I'm just wondering, like, mechanically, how that would work. Like, built on the side of the wall? Well... 
it was more of a stake. If you study out the way the Persians put people to death, the, the word really for gallows is it literally just means stake. And what a lot of people believe, it was a stake with a pointed end. And uh, don't think on this too much where you would just put the person on the stake. And so the person there is literally pierced through his body, not hanged like we think of hanging. Everybody could see it. Everybody could see it. It would be an awful, awful, horrible way to go. Awful. Anybody else have anything here before we go up? Okay, take a look here at Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a great book. It's an honest book. It's one of the most honest books in the Bible because the prophet Habakkuk is basically saying, Lord, why? I don't see you doing anything. I don't see you moving anywhere. I don't see anything. So I'm really asking, Lord, what are you doing and why are you not doing anything? I see violence, I see death, I see trouble, I see the good being punished and the bad getting away with it. Lord, I'm not liking this. So what happens in verse 1 of chapter 2, Habakkuk says this, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I'm corrected. So chapter 1 is him venting. Lord, I don't get it. Beginning of chapter 2, he says, okay, Lord, I've given it to you. I'm waiting for your answer And I will be corrected. I I love this. There's nothing wrong with being honest in your prayers to the Lord, saying, Lord, I don't get this. I don't understand this. I'm struggling. But then we don't do chapter 2 of Habakkuk, where we stop and say, Lord, I'll listen now. Look what the Lord says in verse 2. The Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. God says, the vision is going to happen, the truth is going to come, make it big, write it big. I tell you, I never used to be a fan of journaling. And I've really become a fan of journaling where you're praying about something, you're seeking the Lord, and you really feel like the Lord spoke. Write it down. It's amazing when you go back weeks, days, months later, and you stop and say, wait a second, at that moment, I really felt the Lord was moving. What's changed? Remind myself of the faithfulness of God. And God is saying, wait. Wait for me to move and work. Just like here in the book of Esther. Wait for me to move and work. So now what happens is this. Chapter 2, the Lord responds to Habakkuk. Chapter 3, Habakkuk now responds back to the Lord. And look how he finishes it up. The end of chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. I love that ending. Though everything completely, utterly falls apart in my life, my finances, my health, everything falls apart. Verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I got to love that. I just encourage you, if you're in the middle of an Esther situation right now, and you don't see all these puzzle pieces coming together, have faith that God is moving and working in ways that you do not even see nor understand. I think back to what we talked about on Sunday as we finished up our study in Galatians. Do not grow weary in doing good. For in due season you shall reap if you do not lose heart. Stay the course, stay focused, walk in faith, trust the Lord is doing things that we don't even see nor understand. Anybody have any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up? All right, you guys can stand with me. Let's pray. Lord, as we just come to you now, help us to trust. Help us to trust the puzzle pieces are moving when we don't see it. Help us to trust that you're doing things. You're working on hearts. You're speaking through your spirit even when we don't see it. Help us to walk in faith. 
Help us to know, to trust you on all that we say and do. Thank you for being a God that will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for this being the light and witness that we need. We ask for your blessing, especially upon Saturday, and about the prayer booth and the parade and the prayer chain. All for you, Lord. We lift this up in your name. Amen. If you guys have anything you want to pray about, talk about, come on up here. I'd love to get a chance to pray with you. You guys have a good week, and God bless.